What's up? I'm Ben Hale, and this is the Easy Living Yards podcast. Creating a beautiful yard should be easy. Let's jump in and create the dream yard you deserve so you can enjoy more time doing what you love. Welcome to episode 70 of the Easy Living Yards podcast. Guys, sometimes it's hard to believe I've actually recorded 70 of these episodes. This has been such a fun podcasting experience. I hope you guys are getting a ton of value out of the show. And I am getting just a ton of, I don't know, I feel awesome about recording these shows. So I hope you guys really get something out of it too. Um, I really enjoy recording these episodes and feeling like I'm really providing a positive impact for you guys that are listening to this show. So I hope you really can come away from each show feeling like you can take, you know, good conscious action in your yard to improve your yard to make things better. How'd you guys like that new intro, by the way? Uh, Trying things out there. We'll see if it fits. I'm not sure if I like it or not yet, but we'll give it a shot. Anyway, today's topic, we are talking about 10 invasive plants to avoid and awesome native plants to replace them. Guys, we've talked, I talked, I think it was episode 17, uh, where I talked about uh, native plants and exotic plants. And really, I haven't done a deep dive on what is considered invasive. We hear that term sometimes thrown around. um, And and really, you know, we don't always understand what the definition means when I hear it talked about. So I'm going to define that for us. Uh, And, you know, some people, if you get into the semantics of it, some people don't actually like the term invasive because it labels a plant with, you know, kind of almost like a a personification. It uh, anthropomorphizes, what's the word? Anthropomorphizes, I think that's the word. All right. It puts an anthropomorphic, I should stop trying. All right. It puts an anthropomorphic perspective on plants. There we go. Guys, this is a Friday and when I'm recording this, so you can tell I'm maybe just a little burned out from uh, the week. Could use the weekend here. So anyway, all right. (laughs) So um, let's just jump right in, start talking about um, what is an invasive plant? What does it really mean? Why is it important? Uh, You know, whether or not it's important for you, that's up for you to decide. I'm not here to, you know, proselytize or anything. I think I pronounced that one correctly. Um, But instead, you know, I really want to just provide a perspective, share a little bit of my perspective. You know, this is my opinion I'm sharing here. And I want you to really just come away and think about that and see how you feel. And um, and, and then we'll just dive into these plants. And, And I don't want this to, you know, be... It is kind of like a laundry list type show. I have 10 plants to go through here. I'll just outline quickly what the problem is with each plant and then also an optional replacement plant. There are tons of plants you could replace these these uh, so-called invasives with, but uh you know, I just uh, I tried to not get overwhelmed and too excited with my plant love to recommend, you know, 10 different plants as alternatives to the invasive. So instead, I just made myself pick one, which is really tough sometimes, um but that way it just gives you an idea of some Something you could replace each plant with that kind of fits the same the same you know void that if you took that plant out of your garden these invasives here these are all have been used or are still used and sold as ornamentals and so these are all plants that are invasive and that have been used in the ornamental nursery trade okay so before you guys start listening to all this stuff about invasives let's just talk one thing real quick 
And that is, if you guys have not left a review for the show, I really love it. It really gives me a lot of energy when you go ahead and leave a review in your favorite podcasting app. I mostly see the ones in iTunes, so if you're listening in iTunes, uh, I see those easily. Um, But hey, you know what? If you leave a review and you want me to see it, um, I'll be happy to read it here on the show. If you like, um, go ahead and copy it, you know, or screenshot it and send it to me an email. Um, You can always contact me over at ely.how slash pod. There's a button right at the top of the page that says ask a question. That's an easy way to contact me. Um, And anyway, yeah, if you haven't left a review, consider doing so. Give it an honest review. Of course, I would love if you give it a five-star review, right? But, um, you know, give it an honest review. I don't want it to be a false review. So anyway, I would love that. I would love to see it. It gives me a ton of positive energy and also helps me in this show reach more people like you that are really looking to make a positive difference in their landscape. Okay, let's jump right in. All right, so when it comes to invasive plants, the reality is that some plants are just more trouble than their beauty is really worth. And this is where, you know, we're kind of talking about the greater landscape here. I've used that term before. I I don't know if that's really my term or not, but it's the term I like to use to talk about, you know, the yard outside of our yards. That is, a.k.a. the earth, wherever we live, um, that sort of thing. The You know, the, the naturalized spaces around us. The reality is, a lot of these plants that we like to use, or some of these plants like we like to use, it, you know, they grew up somewhere in the world, right? They, they are native. Every plant is native to somewhere. Of course, the acceptable ones we've hybridized and changed a little bit. Um, even those have roots somewhere, no pun intended, or kind of maybe, um, they have roots somewhere else in the world originally. They were taken out of some natural um, native space to begin with. Now, we as humans, of course, we've selected them, we've bred them, and we've also moved them completely around the world to new spaces where these plants aren't from. And so the reality is when we do that, sometimes it can actually disrupt ecosystems where we move them to. Because here's the thing. So when you think about evolution or how things have adapted and grown to their niche within the world. I'm trying not to get too biological here um, with technical terms. So basically, let's take an oak tree. I'm staring at some oak trees right now. So let's take an oak tree. An oak tree, there's most, most oaks are native to, uh, I think it's mostly the northern hemisphere. I can't remember about the southern hemisphere. Um, I'm showing my, uh, my northern hemispherianite roots. Um, that is really a word for sure. I'm, I'm pretty positive of that one. All right, so I'll try not to have too many more crazy, weird, made-up words. Anyway, um, <laughs> all right, bear with me here, guys. All right, so an oak tree. Each oak tree, so I'm looking at some red oaks right now. The red oak tree, Acer, or no, not Acer, um, that's maple. Um, It's slipping my mind right now. Um, Quercus rubrum, there we go. Quercus rubrum is the Latin name. Not that that matters at all to you right now. But anyway, the red oak is adapted to the eastern United States. It's grown up there for thousands upon thousands of years. And that change in adaptation occurs on a much greater time scale than we can fathom much, much greater than the human lifetime, right? So changes and adaptations occur on a on a much different time scale than we're used to thinking. And when we, as humans, especially in the past two to 400 years, with the advance of nautical global trade and, and aerial global trade, um, have 
significantly increase the dispersion rate of plants across the world. And that massively, well, it has the potential, let me put it that way, it has the potential to massively disrupt ecosystems because they've adapted in tandem with insects and organisms and microbes uh, and weather conditions over a long, long time scale, as these, these, all these different creatures adapt to each other and along with each other to thrive and strive and compete with and between each other as well. And so when we just inter- randomly introduce a new plant to that space, it has the potential to, well, for one, to give it some, you know, multiple sp- perspectives. It has the potential that it can't compete at all in that, that new native is- ecosystem that has been introduced to. But on the flip side, it also has the potential to greatly disrupt that ecosystem too because those plants in that native landscape, we'll, we'll just call it native for now. So, the, you know, the native forest that it's been introduced to, let's say, it has the potential to outcompete those plants because it has certain adaptations that the the original native ecosystem of the place just can't deal with. And and so for example, that all those native plants there might be susceptible to a certain predator that keeps them in balance. That predator might be something as simple as a grasshopper, right? So it eats the plant, right? So it's the it's the plant's predator. And so when you take a new plant and introduce it to that space that grasshopper might find that new plant unpalatable. Because of that, it can grow and outcompete those other plants that are being slowly managed by the grasshoppers of that system. So that's just an example there. So, all right. So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. So now let me define what is invasive. An invasive has multiple characteristics. So it has to kind of fit these multiple things to really truly be an invasive that that truly disrupts ecosystems. There are plenty of of non-native plants that are kind of adapted to a new uh, biome, uh, a new ecosystem, but they don't greatly disrupt it. So, for example, I'm staring at not only a bunch of oak trees, but also a, a, a manicured lawn right now. And so the lawn in the United States is mostly non-native. It's usually comprised of uh, bluegrass, fescues, um, clover, dandelions, um, plantain. Those are all plants. Uh, Other ones are black medic um, and bird's foot trefoil. Those are all plants that are not native to the United States, but they they widely comprise the the lawn, of, especially a non-treated lawn. Those are all types of plants that are in non-treated lawns because all those broadleaf ones would be killed by weed and feed. But anyway, clover, for example, is European. Pretty much all of those, I think, are European, except for I think the bird's foot trefoil might be an African origin. Anyway, doesn't really matter, but the point is that those plants, so the dandelion, for example, is widely widely adapted to most of the United States, as well as plantain. Not the banana-type plantain, but this is a plant. Both have been used. Um, they were introduced early on with with uh, white settlement of the United States in the early, early colonization days. And, and they quickly spread across landscapes that were disturbed. Um, and they were recognized early on as medicinals and edibles, both by the early settlers, but also the Native Americans of the space. And so they began to, so this is, these plants have been around so long that they've actually had kind of almost in a way adapted to the local um, ecosystems, but they're not so um, aggressive. Maybe that's a, you know that's kind of a term. They're not so aggressive that they totally take over a space, and so they're not 
and hugely disrupted to to the the native landscapes. So an alien plant or an, an invasive plant has to be alien, so not native to the original locate or to the given location. The focus of today's show is mostly on U.S. plants. Um, so if you're from somewhere else, uh, you know, plants from the U.S. would be non-native to your location as well. So an alien plant, uh, an invasive plant must be alien. It also must have a dispersive habit so it can spread outside of where it's originally planted. Likewise, it has to, in order to be classified as invasive, it has to displace native habitats. And this is where the dandelion, plantain, they don't really do that to the extent that they displace other stuff. They kind of just kind of um, percolate in around the edges of these other plants and, and kind of, you know, root in. But they don't completely cover a space. And that's really where invasives can be a problem is when they completely displace or cover a space that would be otherwise be occupied by a native habitat. Um, and, and along with that, they have to have very extensive coverage. So all these plants I'm talking about today, they kind of do that in one way or another. So what happens when this when this occurs when they displace native habitats and, and you know have extensive coverage where they take over a whole space really you end up with a single species um, habitat that kind of destroys the otherwise um, very diverse habitat of that space originally and so it can hurt already very fragile natural ecosystems the natural ecosystems across our whole planet are are significantly threatened and that's why we hear all this alarmist stuff out there about all these you know uh, bugs and animals and plants that are threatened and it you know for very good reason because because the space across the planet that we've disrupted is very significant and then in addition to that we've also made this global commerce system that also transports all these other organisms from all across the world where now they're competing with things that they haven't been exposed to for for hundreds of thousands or millions of years so that's kind of where it, you know this this can be really a problem likewise most invasive plants and most alien plants do not support native birds butterflies moths insects um, so on and so forth um, and so, uh, likewise, a lot of the invasives that I talk about today, many of them are outlawed for sale in various states. So it goes to show you that a lot of even state government level has recognized that some of these plants are so disruptive, not only to the native ecosystems, but also to agricultural systems or to stormwater management systems that it's worth, um, you know, outlawing these plants. Okay. All right. I think that's enough there. We've, you know, I, this intro went way longer than I thought, but it's really, obviously you can tell this this is really important to me. I'm really passionate about it. And I guess the last thing I'd like to say is, you know, my perspective on non-natives or invasives has changed over time and it will likely change again. But right now my perspective is that there's so many native plants available to to use that why why wouldn't you default to natives first? And we almost have this tendency, at least here in the States, to default to exotic plants or, or alien plants first, non-native plants, plants from somewhere else. We love plants from China, Japan, Europe, and 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 uh you know there's there's so many plants just out in our that used to grow in our backyard that we don't utilize. And they can be beautiful and wonderful specimens in our landscapes. And so that's what I want to show you today is, is there's tons of beautiful plants we can use and, and they can replace these alien and invasive plants and, and for really good effect. All right, so let's jump in. All right, so 
Let's start with invasive trees. There's two invasive trees to avoid and native alternatives to invasive trees. The first and the one I I almost make this one a villain. And that's the thing is these plants, you know, it's not their fault. It's our fault, right? We're the ones that moved them, transformed them, changed them to, to what they are now. And now they're causing problems because of people. All right. So it's not really the plant's fault, but that said, you know, it's, it's worth avoiding these plants. And so the first is the ornamental pear, also known as the calorie pear or the Bradford pear. I'm going to list the Latin names for each of these plants just so you have them. Don't think you have to spell them based on how I say them because I'm probably going to mispronounce them. So check out the show notes. You can always look at the show notes if you just go to ely.how. That's ely.how slash the episode number. So episode so the word episode then the number so this one would be ely.how slash episode 70 episode 70 so over there check out all these latin names i also have a link to each of these plants so you can check out a resource uh for each of these plants so the ornamental pear the latin name is pyrus caloriana and basically what this plant is it's a small tree it rapidly invades edge ecosystems across the eastern United States. So I can actually look out right now. Um, I don't know if you guys can hear it in the background. I'm actually I'm recording from my mobile studio, aka my car, um, in a local park because I love you know being able to view some nice nature. Um, but I also unfortunately can see a highway, and it's filled with these um, these invaded Bradford pears that came from people's yards and now covers the highway edge and so it rapidly invades these edge ecosystems across all of the eastern united states it's one of the most commonly sold plants in the united states and you know the reason for this plant is it wasn't expected it's thought that a lot of these varieties were sterile well it turns out they can hybridize with a lot of other um, pear trees that are non-sterile and then you get these tiny little fruits that birds are able to eat you know they're not like the full-size European pear. So instead of these, these birds can eat these tiny little fruits and then they fly around all over the place and they get deposited everywhere and they grow. And so they've become a massive problem in the past, you know, 40 to 50 years across the United States. And they're really disrupting edge habitats, which are really, really diverse and important habitats, especially for birds, guys. So if you love birds, this is a big problem. All right, get that. All right, so native alternative to Bradford pear. Uh, the one I have today is the service berry. I love service berry trees. Um, they're like a multi-stemmed shrub or a single stemmed tree, like a small tree. Um, so so you can get various um, varieties. The species I have listed here is Amelanchier canadensis. So it's a native, um, a native shrub that provides these wonderful blooms in the early spring, followed by fruits early, late spring, early summer. Um, they're actually edible fruits, highly nutritious fruits, and very delicious fruits, by the way, um, if you ask me. And then they follow up with beautiful fall foliage as well. And, you know, the, the multi-stemmed forms also provide winter interest just with their multi-stem structure. Even though they don't have the leaves, they still look beautiful with their, their way their trunks are designed. Um, so wonderful alternative. Let's move on. So the Norway maple is the second tree I have that is a very, very common landscape specimen. Um, this is the Latin name Acer plantanoides. And as the name implies, it's from Northern Europe. And uh, this tree, it's a, it's a maple tree, and it displaces native maples and other trees in the understory of eastern forests. And so these, these understory uh, ecosystems are really important. And 
displacing the native ones. Again, you have less uh, forage available for native insects, and fewer native insects means less birds that can eat the insects, which means less birds, and if you love birds, that's a problem. Okay, so what this does is it densely shades out the understory from other plants. This tr- this tree, for whatever reason, just has a habitat or a habit of growing more densely than other maples that like the red maple. And so, for a native alternative to the Norway maple, you guessed it. I recommend the red maple. It's such a beautiful tree. I don't understand why anybody would want to plant the Norway maple, actually, because the red maple is such a beautiful tree. Now, there's another native maple that I do not recommend, and that's the silver maple. So this silver maple, uh, you may have some of these growing in your yard already, depending on how old your house is. This was a very popular landscaping tree back in about the the 40s through the 80s or so. Um, And this was a pretty common landscaping tree because it has a very quick growth habit and unfortunately though in tandem with that it has a very soft wood prone to splitting and breakage and also runs out massive surface roots uh, out wider than the tree grows itself and so the silver weight maple i do not recommend but i do recommend the red maple you want to make sure you plant it where it can grow to mature size so uh, it grows pretty big uh, and you want to make sure it has plenty of space for those roots. It does run some surface roots, but not nearly as bad as the silver maple. So check out the red maple. There's plenty of cultivated varieties available out there. Make sure, again, it's the, a red maple variety, not a cross with some other non-native uh, maple. And there are um, smaller dwarf-style specimens of the red maple available as well. I'm pretty sure. Um, don't quote me on that, but check it out. All right, so... Now let's move on to shrubs, okay? So invasive shrubs to avoid and native alternatives to invasive shrubs. The first one I have is the privet. So the privet is a shrub, as, as I just said, uh, and the, the Latin name, which I will butcher, is Ligustrum obtusifolium, and there's also Ligustrum vulgare. So two different species. Now the problem, these shrubs do look beautiful with their foliage mostly, um, But the problem is that they grow these very, very dense thickets um, that escapes cultivation and grows in, you know, um, scrubland habitat. Um, And uh, it's commonly grown as ornamental, but it causes a lot of problems in in the native or wild landscape, I guess we should better call it. Now, a native alternative to privet, without spending too much more time on it, is the arrowwood viburnum. Now, this is a beautiful plant. Um, it has nice lush foliage throughout the summer, so it provides good uh, cover. The leaves have like this very, very soft, almost like a hairy um, texture to them. So they look kind of like just these soft green, deep green leaves throughout the summer. It looks really nice. Um, and in addition to that, like many viburnums, the airwood viburnum has these beautiful flowers in early to mid-spring, uh, you, uh, white flower clusters, and they just smell absolutely overpoweringly wonderful. Um, sometimes the smell's almost too strong, but while these blooms last, such a beautiful plant. Okay, um, enough about the privet, enough about the airwood viburnum. The amor honeysuckle is the next one. So Lanacera mackey. Um, is the Latin name for it. And Amur honeysuckle or Chinese honeysuckle is a shrub or tree that pretty much takes over the understory and the edge habitat for um, much of the eastern United States. It's a massive problem here in southern Ohio. Um, and 
just like you know these other shrubs it forms very dense thickets it replaces the understory of these ecosystems and it causes a lot of problems now it does have beautiful flowers on it um, while the flowers last but to be honest i find these shrubs pretty ugly um, i actually don't understand why people have grown this one uh, ornamentally because there's plenty of other ornamental options out there uh, especially native ones of course that i think are much more attractive now, uh, as far as a native alternative to honeysuckle, the black elderberry is a wonderful shrub and has beautiful uh, umbellate flower clusters in the late spring, early summer phase. And it's followed up by these wonderful black um, berries that uh, emerge kind of late summer, early fall uh, time frame. And uh, just a wonderful, beautiful plant. Now, as far as the structure of it, it's very similar to the amor honeysuckle where it's kind of this multi-stemmed shrub and during the winter i don't find it as attractive as say the um for example the service berry i mentioned earlier but for you know three seasons of the year such a beautiful plant and also you know these these berries are highly medicinal and edible um if prepared properly so but don't just eat them raw uh, they they can cause you some gastro intestinal problems but um they are used as a medicinal so check that out if that's something that sounds cool to you we actually um my family uh, uh concocts this little uh elderberry syrup kind of thing every uh cold season and we take it as a supplement to uh reduce uh cold and flu and that sort of thing and it's actually you know there's there's a lot of data that shows that's effective so um really cool stuff there um it's kind of like growing your own medicine so if that sounds cool to you check out uh black elderberry latin name is sambucus nigra and there's also sambucus canadensis which is also native to the area so check that out um don't grow the amor honeysuckle next one burning bush this is a another one that's just not really a good thing to grow. It really escapes cultivation. The Latin name is Euonymus alatus. It's a very popular shrub for its bright red, orange, fiery uh, red foliage in the fall. Okay, so the problem with it, aside from its beauty, is that it invades roadsides and edge habitat pretty extensively. And to be honest, I don't find it that, you know, it's got one season interest, essentially. Otherwise, it's pretty much this just dense green hunk for most of the growing season. It doesn't really have any, you know, noticeable blooms. And um, it's just not, you know, it's not a huge all-around plant. So that's kind of not a huge thing for me you know just the fall interest it's kind of cool for a little bit and it is really beautiful but it, the the problems again aren't worth it so as far as a native alternative to burning bush check out the black hall viburnum so this is related to the arrowwood viburnum uh, viburnum prunifolium is a beautiful beautiful shrub and uh, it has this wonderful fiery red fall foliage. That's why I selected it for this one as an alternative because it has that uh, fiery fall foliage. Now, I want to say as a quick aside that as far as what goes with all of these recommended alternatives, make sure if you're considering it to look up what your conditions are. I've talked about this in many episodes. Know your site conditions, where you want to plant it, and make sure this plant will thrive in that condition. It's so hard to make a recommendation about any plant because there's no plant that works for everyone, okay? And so make sure these plants I recommend here that it really does work in your condition. 
That's true for any plant. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of vines. So some of us like to have vines growing in various locations. Here's two invasive vines that I recommend native alternatives for. First, Japanese honeysuckle. Massive problem across the eastern United States. The Latin name is Lonicera japonica. It's a vine. It grows quickly and it girdles trees. Guys, these, these vines can take down a whole, a whole giant mature red oak tree. And... Um, and then it just takes over the space after that. Um, as far as a native alternative to Japanese honeysuckle, check out the trumpet vine. Uh, the Latin name is Campsis radicans. Now, some people complain about this vine kind of, you know, being a little too wild, a little too unwieldy. So make sure you grow it in a space where it can grow and it can spread and it's okay. All right. But this isn't as bad as the Japanese honeysuckle. It's not going to pull down a giant mature tree or anything like that. Just make sure you grow it in a space where it can be, um, it can just kind of do its thing. All right. Um, the next vine is Chinese wisteria. And without exception, this one is also a massive problem. Such a beautiful plant, but causes major, major problems. Okay, so uh, the, the Latin name is Wisteria sinensis. It's a beautiful, beautiful climbing vine. But here's the deal. Even, I would say maybe even worse than Japanese honeysuckle, this one is a tree killer. It takes over whole forested areas, brings down giant trees, and then it just continues to crawl over everything, all right? So this causes problems because it makes this diverse, diverse space and all these species that can live off of these trees and all the understory shrubs and herbaceous layer plants and turns it into one species that doesn't really support much. So then you have issues of the whole ecosystem collapsing in that space. So it's a big problem, all right? That's really, I could repeat this same story for almost every one of these plants I'm talking about today. So as far as um, the Chinese wisteria, this is predominantly an invasive plant in the southeastern U.S. as well as along the Atlantic coast. So especially if you live there, but really, guys, I don't recommend you to grow this anywhere. There's native wisteria vines. That's not actually what I'm recommending today, but but uh, check out native wisteria vines if you really want to wisteria and make sure you're getting the native when you're when you're buying it okay um now as, and they're usually better behaved than the chinese wisteria because again they they evolved here they adapted to this space along with um herbaceous um predators that uh evolved along with them right so they have controls likewise the the microbes that can control them as well they basically they just evolved to this this space right so they don't outcompete everything okay so as far as a native alternative to tr- chinese wisteria check out there there it's a weird two weird common names among many others uh, virgin's bower or woodbine the Latin name is Clematis virginiana. That's right, guys. You've heard of Clematis before. This is a native Clematis vine. Beautiful vine, just like the trumpet vine. Make sure you grow it in a space where you can either manage it or it can just kind of be allowed to go free a little bit and take up a little bit of space because that's what this vine does. And, and you know, it's, it's not as nearly as aggressive as Chinese wisteria. So I wouldn't even call this an aggressive plant, but it just is a plant that needs some room to grow. Okay, so that's enough for vines. Let's move on to plants. So these are ground covers, herbaceous perennials, and grasses. So I have three here. 
The first is Purple Loosestrife. Guys, this is right up there with the Calorie Pair. This is one of the, the worst defenders when it comes to uh, invasive, non-native plants. All right, so Purple Loosestrife, the Latin name is Lythrum salicaria. Okay, and the reason I list all these nerdy Latin names is just so you can, it, it helps you, common names are used across multiple plants a lot of times, so it helps you identify you're talking about the right plant. Okay, so purple loose strife the reason this guy's such a problem it it can completely take over wetland habitats marshes uh river edges stream banks that sort of thing it completely takes over them then there's issues with erosion massive loss of habitat because there's tons of uh all sorts of creatures that require specific plants that they've adapted to to um, help them create their homes or habitat or food or that sort of thing so this really, really messes things up. Wetlands are one of the most susceptible um, habitats to disruption, and so it's, it really causes problems. Okay, so aside from this massive disruption, what can you do? Well, it's already out there, right? We have to work on controlling it. There's tons of programs to do that. As far as con- you don't want to continue cultivating it, though, right? So what do you do instead? Well, here's a native alternative to purple loose strife is the Marsh Blazing Star. The Latin name is Liatris spicata. It has a very similar flowering form where it's these beautiful, tall, magenta, um, maroonish, uh, more magenta, I guess, um, spikes of this beautiful, beautiful color um, throughout the late summer. And um, just such a beautiful plant. So consider using the Marsh Blazing Star instead of Purple Loose Strife. Um, even if you hear that there's a sterile cultivar out there of purple loose strife guys it's not true there's studies that have shown that this stuff it the seeds easily hybridize when because they're pollinated um and so they hybridize when they're pollinated um with genetics from wild strains of this stuff now and uh each plant it's something it's something crazy it's like two hundred thousand seeds per plant per season it's ridiculous this stuff disperses everywhere so just don't grow purple loose strife even if you're told it's a sterile plant not true okay so winter creeper euonymus is the next one uh kind of a weird name this is euonymus fortunae this is a very unfortunate plant um Winter creeper euonymus is a ground cover creeping vine and it takes over, completely takes over spaces similar to English ivy. English ivy could very well be on this list as well. Euonymus is even worse because it's a dispersive plant. The berries, the seeds from it, um, they can be picked up by birds and moved to new locations. It'll completely take over the ground layer of a forest ecosystem. Big problem, guys. All right. So there's parks around us where there's just giant carpets of this stuff. Yes, it looks pretty to the eye, actually, but it just totally disrupts the habitat. So what can you do? Well, native alternatives to winter creeper euonymus. I've got two of them for this one. The first is wild ginger the Latin name is Asarum canadens, and beautiful little plant, heart-shaped uh, leaves to it. Um, great thing that just covers, it's again a three-season ground cover essentially, covers the forest's floor with these beautiful heart-shaped leaves. Um, just, yeah, wonderful little texture basically. And um, the other one, if you're not into something like wild ginger, there's also Pennsylvania sedge, which basically gives you like a, a grassy, mounding habitat to um, your ground cover all right moving on last one chinese silver grass also known as maiden grass chinese maiden grass or miscanthus grass 
this I had to at least include one grass, and this is the one, guys. This is one where it's it causes problems. It gets out of control. It's on roadsides. It's in old field habitat um, it, and edge ecosystems. Uh, the Latin name is Miscanthus sinensis. Um, so if you see Miscanthus grass in in your nursery, it's likely this guy um, or a cultivar of it. There are many uh, hybrids out there that are considered, uh, you know, they're called sterile again. Um, there have been studies on them that show that most of them are not sterile. And the ones that are, likely the seed, once pollinated, can, um, you know, cross with other ones and become non-sterile. So again, it's a problem, guys. Just don't grow it. There's plenty of native alternatives that you can grow that have, you know, there's no question if it escapes your garden that it will cause a problem because it's native to the region. So it doesn't matter as much. Okay. Now, even if it's a, you know, a selected cultivar, we don't really want too many selected cultivars escaping our garden, but it's better than a non-native guys. So that's the, that's the takeaway here. So very dispersive displaces native grasses and herbaceous plants. Now this one, it, even though I would classify it still as an invasive, it's not one that just completely takes over everything. So that's the that's the silver lining, I guess. But I still don't recommend this plant. Okay, it causes problems. That's the that's the short answer. It doesn't support wildlife. That's the next short answer. Okay. So what's a native alternative? Switchgrass is the one I'm selecting for today. Panicum virgatum is the Latin name. Beautiful upright uh, grass, very similar to. Um, uh, miscanthus, maiden grass, whatever you want to call it. Um, beautiful plant. There's tons of beautiful cultivars out there from that have this beautiful like maroon foliage, even into winter. Um, very beautiful, um, beautiful seed head selection on some of them. Uh, shorter habit on some others. So just check out the varieties of switchgrass um, and and don't don't buy. Uh, miscanthus guys just not worth it likewise everything i've talked about as far as the uh, non-native invasives today don't buy them not worth it guys to me this is this is a personal thing okay i don't want this on my conscience that's how deep this is to me guys it's just it just doesn't make sense yes if something looks beautiful let's admire it for its beauty but let's admire it in the region it's from Okay, there's something to be said about just selecting things from your region, expressing the character of your region. And if it's not from if it's not a plant from where you are, let's be super, super careful about introducing it or propagating it or using something that's from somewhere else. Okay, there are plenty of plants available in each of our regions that we don't have to be crisscrossing so much. And that's what I want to highlight today is is each of these invasives. These are on the top list of invasives i tried to pick some of the top 10 that are invasive across the u.s there's a perfectly good alternative for each of these and i had to select one alternative just to make this show not last for for forever (laughs) um and and so the reality is there's plenty of alternatives out there but I wanted to help us at least make a clear choice for each one so guys i wanted to share a special thanks to the missouri botanical garden and also invasive.org for the help in compiling all the resources I have today. Each of these plants I talked about, both the invasive as well as the the native alternative, I have a link so you can go find out some information on it, um, see what it looks like. Um, I also I, I hope to have pictures on the episode webpage, so go check out the episode webpage. Um, again, it's ely.how. That's ely.how/episode70. 
So go over there. There should be a link in the show notes as well if you can access it. And and that has all the information for today's show. Likewise, if you really want a list, you know, a little bit beyond what we talked about today, if you want a list of low-maintenance plants for the United States, most of them are native plants on that list. There's one or two non-natives, I think. And I think I'm, I noted that. Um, check it out, the link in the show notes for low-maintenance plants for the U.S. It's a, it's a free giveaway resource I have that helps you make some quick decisions before going to the nursery of some plants you like um, that, and just make sure that they adapt, they're adaptable to your condition. That's the caveat for every plant we talk about is know your conditions. All right, know your conditions, know your conditions. Then select the right plants for your space, and that's how you create a low-maintenance yard. Now that said, these plants work in most spaces across the United States, so go check out that list if you want a short list of plants that work. Guys, as always, you deserve a beautiful yard. So if you're ready to really make a positive change, create your beautiful yard with the Easy Living Yards membership. There's a link in the show notes. You can go check out information more about the Easy Living Yards membership. I look forward to seeing you in the membership. As always, if you just have a quick question, you can reach out to me at ely.how slash pod. That's ely.how slash pod. And right at the top of the page, there's a way to click a button ask me a question it'll drop right into the top of my inbox and i can get back to you to help you out guys thanks for tuning in make sure you live with passion make tomorrow better than today and don't plant invasives